Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly. Ben Hur. Space Monkey. Mafia. Hula Hoops. Let's get hooping, Katie. Hello again and welcome to episode 72 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with hula hoops. Hula hoops, I'm feeling hungry. You're not talking about a crisp though, Katie, are you? No, and that is only a snack in the United Kingdom. That is make, it really? Yes, 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 yes. You're revealing your parochial roots. <laughs> we are talking about the novelty toy that I was obsessed with as a child. I mean, growing up in the 70s, it was really the era of novelties. I remember routinely breaking my fingernails off backwards, trying Ouch. trying to catch a Frisbee in midair clumsily. Uh, I remember rolling down the hill in this giant bright orange <laughs> egg-shaped uh, device that was like, uh, you know, it made you look like a, a adult-sized fetus rolling down the <laughs> I don't know what the name was of that thing. Fetus and, ball. Fetus ball. <laughs> and, of course, the hula hoop, which on my stocky, little, chubby, nine-year-old hips, I, I couldn't really make heads or tails of. How about, what are your hula hoop skills? My hula hoop skills, Katie, I last tried out in 1984 in the back garden of my parents' house. Um, having grown up with three sisters who could all hoop or hula or hula hoop, I don't know what the terminology is, I could never get it going. I was reduced, Katie, to using the hula hoop in a slightly different way. It would have been a plastic blue one. I would get my sisters to roll it along the ground, so it's basically providing a rolling aperture. And then, like a small auburn-haired gymnast, I would throw myself through the moving hoop and come out safely the other side without disturbing the roll of the hula hoop. You know what? That is very Cirque du Soleil, ahead of your time. If only the hoop had been on fire. Well, I think that could have been arranged. <laughs> well, Katie, that is the sum of our knowledge on hula hoops, but I'm glad to say we are joined by someone who knows a great deal more about them than we do, and that is Amy Hill. Amy is one half of the husband-wife directing duo Reese Hill with her husband, Chris Reese. They made the short documentary, 
Hula Girl. Amy, welcome. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about your lovely documentary and the extraordinary story it centres around, were you a, you a hooper as a, as a young girl? I was a hooper. Um, I hooped the normal way. And I also remember you, I used to put it, I think, on my ankle. Nice. And I would, remember, you would put it on your ankle and then you would kind of hop over it with your other foot. I, I remember doing that. I'm interested in the fact, Amy, that uh, while I associate hula hoops with post-war American fun, it turns out it's, it goes all the way back to ancient Greece. There's like the, some ye olde history to this thing. Can you tell us about it? In no way was this like invented uh, you know, in the late 50s. The, the plastic version of it was, but they've been around forever, absolutely forever since ancient Greece, uh, Egyptian times, all that. So they were made out of rattan, right? And uh, I was basically reduced to what everybody else is, which is surfing the internet and reading stories. Um, we had reason to believe everything we read, except for how the name came to be. And we'll get into that later because that story of sailors somehow in Hawaii and the name Hula, like it was so conflated. And to our knowledge, that is not the case. That is not where the name came from. The reason we're talking about hula hoops, Katie, at this point is that America goes absolutely nuts for the hula hoop in the late 1950s. There's an estimated 25 million hula hoops sold in the first month of production. In its first year on the shelves in the spring of 1958, it makes $100 million for a company called Whammo. But, Amy, to reverse the story... It shouldn't end up that way. Correct. Correct. The, the, so um, I got, uh, uh, you know, my husband and I do what we do. We've been doing it quite a while, and uh, we, which is we make commercials. So, you know, we sell toilet paper and chicken and all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, my mother apparently and my father were, were at a restaurant in San Diego, and it was like probably happy hour knowing them, getting to a bargain. And uh, there were a group of ladies um, and my mother, of course, her just, she was listening to their conversation. And what she heard this woman talk about was her mother and how her mother had a story and that she was getting up there in age and she wanted someone to tell the story because she thought it was important and she thought it would be meaningful for her mother. This, it turns out it was Laurel and Willis, and she is the daughter of Joan Anderson. And she was hanging out with a bunch of court reporters. She'd been a court reporter, so they'd since retired, I guess, and they were whooping it up at a bar. Okay, so she's talking about her mom and the story and something about a hula hoop, blah, blah, blah. And my mother hears the whole story. And as she is leaving the restaurant, she gets up and she walks over to Laurel and she says, listen, I, I couldn't help it. I overheard your story. I heard you talking about your mother. And <laughs> well, my daughter and my son-in-law are filmmakers and, you know, I maybe they would be interested in this. And um, so she got Laurelyn's phone number and then I got the dreaded dreaded message on my answering machine. <laughs> Amy, it's your mother. Call me. I have just something to say to you or tell you, you know, just give me a call. So I call her. Of course, I call her and she tells me the story of what happened. And, you know, I'm like, oh, mom, God, I, well, she says, I got her number like you didn't. I didn't give her yours. I got her number. You do it. And she did that classic very passive aggressive <laughs> thing. You do what you want. I think there's a story here. I mean, 
to me, it's compelling. Do what you want, Amy. Do what you want. <laughs> I mean, here's the number. Call or don't call. And, you know, and, and mom's got a nose for news. And so by the time you do make contact with her, what is her story? We basically call and I say, now there's a second level. I got to beg Chris to do this now because Chris is the cameraman. So this is going to involve sweat. Right. A lot of effort. And I I can't just say, you know, strap on the camera and let's go. I got I have to make a convincing argument to him now. So I I get on the call with Orland. I'm like, I don't know. It sounds legit. What do we have to lose? Let's go out and meet her. And so we drive out to Laurelin's house. Not, you know, Laurelin brought her mother up and we walk in the house and there's Joan. I mean, head to toe fancy, head to toe I don't even the the earrings probably weighed twenty pounds each. <laughs> um, she's ab and and she's ninety three at the time. She's spectacular. She's agile. I mean, it's like I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's it's crazy, and um, she's got a rattan hoop with her, an old rattan hoop. Um, and so we, she's delightful. We sit her down and we hear her story and um, we film her. Uh, with the hoop in the background. Um, and then they bring to us the legal agreement, the lawsuit, um, which is very important because to be, you know, we take pictures of the whole thing. I, I think we even left and went and copied it and then came back. I mean, we needed to understand that this was real. We are listening to a 93-year-old tell a story. You know, if, if there wasn't a lawsuit to back up the entire thing, which her dear husband documented everything. I don't know if we would have made this film, but there was because it's the truth. So, and here's what she tells us. Joan is from Australia. She's a war bride, by the way. Um, so she basically meets this handsome man on Bondi Beach and they fall in love and they get married and they move to the United States and um, they live um, a great life and she has a couple kids. And then in 56, in December, she's homesick. She goes back to Australia. And the way she tells it is that she hears giggling and laughing going on. She goes and she, she sees her relatives. They're playing with the rattan hoop. They're doing their, I'm not going to call it the hula hoop, but they're using the hoop, right? So she thinks it's really cool. She does it because she's very athletic um, herself. Um, she comes back to the United States, tells her husband actually about this hoop. Now her husband owns a manufacturing, uh, it's like a wood manufacturing uh, business, basically out here in Los Angeles. And he has sold machines to Whamma. And it's like the Wild West now. So, you know, everyone's trying to make a buck. So he, she tells him about this hoop and he says, well, why didn't you bring one? And she's like, because it's a hoop, it's huge. So she writes a letter to her mother and she, her mother sends her a hoop, the hoop in the mail, the wooden rattan hoop. Um, and so they spend basically almost, I would say, a year trying to convince their friends to do something with this. They have dinner parties. She demonstrates the, um, you know, what she does with it. At some point, she's doing it. And a friend says, you look like you're doing the hula because she's, you know, gyrating her hips. And she says, that's what we'll call it, the hula hoop. She and her husband, they come up with the name. Her husband starts to communicate with Spud. Who's Spud? Who is Spud Malin? He and Richard Neer are the founders of Whammo, um, one of the most successful toy companies ever. 
right? And they had just, they're fresh off the Frisbee, by the way, fresh off the Frisbee, feeling good, right? So he communicates with Spud and they make a, a meeting and they meet in the parking lot. Alarm bell straight away. I've always thought that was interesting. Why the parking lot? Yeah. Why didn't they go into the office? Why didn't Spud bring him into the office? Right. I don't think it's totally calculated, but I think I find it interesting. And they show him the hoop. They show him what they do with it. Joan demonstrates, you know, the the movements. She tells him they call it the hula hoop. She, you know, explains where she's from, what she saw. We think it could be something. Handshake deal. He takes the rattan hoop. I'll be in touch. And he was in touch. He basically calls them and he says, uh, you got to come down to the Sportsman Lodge. Joan loves telling the story. They go to the Sportsman Lodge. Everybody's doing the hoop. Every, I mean, it's crazy. So this is very exciting. And now there's a conversation about how do we mass manufacture these uh, with polyurethane. But all along, they're saying so not where's the money, but what's the deal? Yeah. And it's kind of radio silence about that, but just hold on. There's a lot of this. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Wemma goes into production in the hoop in 1958. Wayne gets a check for $200 and, and Spud calls it a good faith deal is what he does. And Wayne wants, Joan's husband wants a, a one to 2% per hoop royalty. And that ain't going to happen. Mm. What we understand is that the Frisbee, there was a royalty with the Frisbee that didn't do so well for Whammo. They did not want to do that again. So, um, but Wayne is clear, $200 is not adequate compensation for this. Basically, Spud says, listen, I can't talk about further compensation until we know the full result of the hula hoop, right? And how this is going to go. Um, and it's too early to tell basically what's going to happen. The hula hoop explodes. We know what happens with all the numbers. And in 59, they meet again. And Spud and Richard Nerd basically say that they don't owe the Andersons anything because they lost money on the hoop. <gasps> Hang on. So how can they claim to lose money on this, Amy, when it is sold such a staggering number? From what I remember, they say this because other competitors came out. They could not trademark the hoop. Ah. <laughs> Okay, they couldn't do that. It, I don't trademark copy. They they couldn't because they hoop for around. I mean, there is even an argument. There's a guy in in uh, it's called Toll Toys in Australia who who there is a claim that he made a plastic hoop prior to Joan bringing the wood rattan hoop to the United States. I couldn't find any evidence of that. I dug and I dug and I dug. That's not to say it didn't happen, but. Um, so, no, they say that they lost money, that they built plants to make hula hoops. The fad came, the fad went, and other competitors came up with the, you know, different names and didn't call it the hula hoop. They do trademark hula hoop, though. I mean, Amy, the fact that they trademarked it, I mean, that is a total weasel move. And also it's a weasel move that Whammo said, oh, hold fire until we see how this all plays out and whether it's successful. That's not how you do business. And I'm wondering if there was an aspect of them just thinking, we're just dealing with a woman we don't need to respect her. And like they never intended to take her seriously. Do you think that that was probably well, the case? Well, I think at the time it was it was Joan and her husband, you know. I mean, but she was the one who, who her husband was, 
you know, kind of making all the contact, but it was Joan and the and the, the word hula hoop, and it was Joan and the demonstration, and it was Joan's idea that this thing is phenomenal. Look yeah. what it does. Look how it makes you feel, right? So, yeah. Um, but it, they they were always presented together. I don't know if it was about I can take advantage of her. It was I can take advantage of them. That's yeah. what it was. And and there was nothing she could do. In 1961, there is a settlement for $6,000, basically. That's and ludicrous. That's it. The reason we were interested in telling Joan's story is because Joan's good. Joan is 98 today. Joan has le- lived a great life. She was madly in love with her husband. He lived to a ripe old age. Um Quite frankly, she outlived all of them. (laughs) She outlived everybody. So Joan gets the last word. I mean, that's the crazy part. You know, and she felt, she said to me, look, I could have just been bitter my whole life. We could have been bitter our whole life. But there was nothing we could do, and we just chose to move on. And he had a very successful business. He did very, very well. They, They had four children. They led a good life and she's 98 and, you know, living proof. So, um, well, the fact that she's so fabulous and so long lived and wears earrings that weigh 200 pounds and has so much style and chicness is a tribute and a testimony to the efficacy of the hula hoop. Because presumably if she had that, uh, you know, quick hip response her whole entire life, that obviously is a uh, a testament to the fact that her mind is quick and her spirit is light. So she lives in a complex in, down near San Diego. You know that Richard Nurse, one of his wives, lives on the other end? <gasps> so this is one of the, the Whammo founders? One of the Whammos. I don't know if it's a first wife, a second wife, but a wife, because he's gone, Richard, lives on the uh, at the time of, of filming, did I'm like, would well, you want to? Do you want us to go talk to her? Uh, no, we don't need to do that. I don't want to upset her. No, she knows I'm. She's gonna know I'm here now. I mean, so you know, we had a blast. We went back. We had Joan. You know, Joan always wanted to tell her story, so she went around. She taught a class. Best part was to see her so thrilled to see her be able to tell her story. Mm. And stand up um, at, at these screenings for the documentary. And, I mean, there was nothing cooler. You know, she was the clearly the, you know, oldest person in the room, the most fabulous, um, completely articulate, completely with it. And I'm, I'm curious to know what Joan's feeling is about her distinctive contribution to pop culture. I mean, Grace Jones blew everybody's mind at the 2012 Jubilee concert in London by hula hooping for the entire length of Slave to the Rhythm. <laughs> and, and she regularly hula hoops in her show. So um, I wonder if, if Joan understands, like even today, uh, the hula hoop is an iconic part of pop culture. And so is she, by extension. She does understand that, and she and and she's been contacted by some big time hula hoopers. Um, they, <laughs> I get, I get, you know, I get emails uh, saying, "Can you contact her for me?" And it, it recently happened. Somebody just wanted to say thank you, thank you. It's uh. I, you know, it's a big part of my life, and so that's really that's really great. Well, that has certainly put some jut in my strut. Um, before I get too carried away, Tom, I think I need to just take a little breather and uh, hitch my wagon to some ads. 
Tom, the thing about doing this podcast, it reminds me of this dog I just once dog sat for. And I remember that you could take him for games of fetch all the live long day and he would have energy to beat the band. But if you put him through his paces with his tricks, he was sacked out after five minutes. And that is how I feel after recording a podcast. I just it. It just taxes my brain. I'm so kind of tired and enervated. And that's why I can't wait to have a big gulp of this. Katie, my eyebrows are now on the ceiling. Let's spell out for the listeners at home who can't see what you're talking about. We should maybe paint a picture. Katie, you're holding a glass of a particularly vibrant green drink. What is it? (laughs) Tom, I'm so glad you asked. This is my Athletic Greens multivitamin. And after a day of toasting my lobes, as you mysteriously like to put it, around the fire, boy, do I need it. Katie, I have heard about this stuff. Is it tasty? How are you finding it? Well, it's tasty, but it's also really convenient. I don't have to take a bunch of different pills. All I have to do is just drink this one beverage, and it gives me all the vitamins I need. Better energy, better gut health, and that helps everyone around me. And it actually tastes pretty great. It doesn't taste, you know, healthy. It has kind of a mild tropical taste. Am I getting a slight note of pineapple wafting across the table, Katie? How do I get my hands on this stuff? (laughs) Well, you can get your tongue around it um, because I have sourced a deal for you. So with your first purchase on the Athletic Greens website, they're going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which is crucial for your immune system, and five free travel packs. So start booking your travel tickets. All you have to do is use the code BILLY, B-I-L-L-Y. So head to athleticgreens.com slash Billy, B-I-L-L-Y, and get your mitts on this fabulous deal. There's many things I love about your documentary, Amy. Um, And one of them is we, throughout the first part of the documentary, we often see Joan with a hoop, but in repose. She might have a hoop. She's holding one around her waist, or she might be leaning on one, and then she shows the original one. And all the way through, I'm thinking, ah, you know, she used to hoop, but she's too old to hoop. And then you give us that beautiful payoff where she just slings it around her hips and hoops all over again. Yeah, that was our editor, Bill Chessman, who was as much of a part of this as, you know, Bill, Bill, Bill Chessman is the best. And and he was like, we got to hold off on that hooping, man. We got to wait. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Built mm-hmm. that up. And if she could do it all again, would she have approached it differently? Does she ever kind of replay it in her head and think, you know, maybe we shouldn't have had that first meeting in the parking lot. Should have taken it inside into the office. Yeah. She talks a lot about the handshake and that she and her husband really believed that that meant something. So I, I think that even at the time of us, you know, filming her, she was still kind of stunned that it didn't mean anything. Well, that makes sense. So, uh, for a woman of that generation, a handshake, or a man of that generation, a handshake sure. did mean something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, that that's never resolved for her at all. It's funny for me, Katie, how the the sort of founding myths of the hula hoop recur in popular culture. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you've seen the Hudsucker Proxy because you know you love your Coen Brothers films, yeah. where Tim Robbins supposedly, as the stupid male boy who gets promoted to the top of the company, invents the hula hoop. Right. Yeah. Um, I I mean, it's just one of those uh, shorthands, I think, for American culture. Um, The idea of something that's so playful and silly uh, 
and sort of turns everybody back into a child. And it's also uh, an instrument of joy. You just can't help but smile when you're hooping. Yeah, you're smiling when it's working and you're getting it going and you're smiling when it's falling to your ankles, right? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it's joy all around. Also, I, it occurs to me that getting rich overnight with a novelty. It's kind of the classic American dream. Um, I guess the modern day equivalent is inventing a best-selling app. That's what, you know, every uh, grown man and they're living in their mother's basement is trying to do to get out of that basement or else becoming a TikTok sensation. Um, does does uh, Joan have an idea of herself in that that rich uh, tapestry or that rich tradition of American innovators? I don't think she does. I think my guess would be that she, you know, because she had to put this to bed. Mm. She, to survive, to live her best life, right? Uh, uh, you know, she she had to kind of move on in the '60s. You know, even though her husband wasn't a lot, it wasn't alive at the time that we filmed this. He, um, there's a love story behind all this between uh. her and this man that she met on the beach. She talked about him. She would talk, and she would like glow when she spoke about her husband. They were mad for each other, and I think that. They went through this together. They got through this together. They continued and made even, a, you know, a, a wonderful life together. And, and that's how she moved past it. In answer to your question, does she think a lot about that? I don't think so. I think she thinks about the great love of her life. I think she thinks about her four children. I think she thinks about uh, her bangles and her earrings and her, I mean, the, the outfits were pretty crazy. And let me tell you, I am not a fan. So Chris and I, when we film, we're like, please don't wear an orange. Please don't wear an orange. Please, please no orange in the room. We hate orange. Orange on, on camera just stinks. And so we, she opens up the door the first time uh, we went to film her and she's got, she's Sherbert head to toe <laughs> and her house or her, her apartment orange uh. and gold. And I think about Joe's rattan hoop that, by the way, when we walked into her apartment that day, it was behind her door of her office. Um, that's where she kept it, behind the door. Um, and I know she still has it. And I I hope that, that someday, you know, something good happens with that hoop. So I want to pull back from Joan to you, Amy. Um, when obviously you have your antenna up at all times, uh, if your mother doesn't, uh, for what would make a good story. And so when you were gripped by the idea to film Joan's story, were you seeing her as part of a kind of an American tradition or, or, or a great American character? I was seeing her as a person. My whole thing, and Chris's as well, was that she, things happen in life that suck. We get ripped off Hard times, bad things happen. And I was in love with her choice to move on and not let it take her down. That is what compelled us to make this film. The The, the film that we did, you know, we, we never, we didn't know what we were going to do with it, by the way. We did not, we did not make this. And if anything, we thought it was going to get us more toilet paper commercials. Do you know what I mean? Like as commercial directors, we, you know, we deal in testimonials. So we just thought, oh, we'll get, you know, we'll make this little piece and it can go on our reel. We never had any intention 
other than just making something that we could show her and she'd be proud of it. But we did submit it in a rough cut form to Tribeca. And, you know, it premiered at Tribeca. The Tribeca Film Festival. That's Robert De Niro's film festival in New York. Is that right? That's that's right. Ah. So it premiered at Tribeca. And then um, it was on, we put it on the festival circuit for about a, a year. Um, and Joan came to Tribeca. Joan stood up in front oh. of an audience. Yeah, I love it. And you know what she said? She said, I make my husband proud that, that this happened. I think Wayne would be so proud right now. It was just really kind of... Lovely. But because it went on the circuit and it went from there and it did actually go to Flickerfest on Bondi Beach, which is where she met her husband. It, it, feel, it was screened there um, in Australia. It got some media attention. And I did get an email from Richard Nair's grandson. Oh. The grandson of Mr. Whammo. And he wrote, I heard there's a film. Um, I don't know if it puts my grandfather in a good light. Oh. I hope it does. Mm -hmm. From what we understand, he named the hula hoop. You know, <gasps> it was, you know, what? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. And his, you know, it was just so hearsay what he was saying. This was like urban legend. You know, my grandfather had three names and they came up with this. And, um, you know, and I, I did the thing that I was told to do, which is, you know, don't respond because there's no point. This is like some dirty detective story. Katie, you're going to have to help me out here because, in fact, Amy, you can, both, you can both help me out as women born in the United States. I've got a list here of products that Whammo produced after Frisbee and Hula Hoop. Um, some of these I'm familiar with, others I'm not. What is the Super Bowl? Of course I know. A Super Bowl is a bouncy ball. It's a, it's a polyurethane ball. Um, you get them in gumball machines. Um, I loved a Super Bowl. Oh, they, they have glitter inside. They, I now remember, yeah. So they're like rubbery, but also strangely latexy, and they bounce really high. Really high. You definitely uh, go through them because they get lost. Yeah. Okay, that is the Super Bowl. What is the water wiggle, please? I think the water wiggle, is that something like a tube that when you shoot water through it from a hose, the whole thing just snaky. It snakes around and then kind of spurts out water at either end? This is me just imagining. I'm spitballing here, Amy. Okay, well, here's one I think I know, which is silly string. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, silly string. So that's out of a can and yeah. it's like green or pink and it just goes... And that's also a plastic byproduct. Probably all of these things couldn't have been invented without uh, moonshot technology, I'm thinking. OK, so what about the slip and slide? Oh, well, I mean, you know, um, I don't know what age we got a slip and slide but, with our children, but we had a slip and slide in front of our house. Who doesn't want a slip and slide? I mean, you definitely might die going down one, but it's, it could be worth <laughs> what, what it. What is it? Uh, Oh, it's a big, it's a plastic, it's a, it's yellow usually. It's a yellow piece of plastic that um, you wet with a hose and you, you <laughs> run towards it and you throw your gut down on it and Tremendous. slide to the end in, sometimes into a fence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it depends, it depends on where you put it. Yeah. Do you think... There was a particular appetite in post-war America for toys and these kind of diversions. I mean, do you see it as a regular part of American culture? Absolutely. Look at the, it was it, toy culture exploded um, at, at that time. I think I think the innocence of that period of time and and so much that had not been invented yet. It was just it was 
I'm not surprised that so many cool things came about during that time period. I think we needed, I'm not even saying we needed distraction. We needed joy. You always need joy mm-hmm. uh, after tough times, right? Um, and so play is just that. It's kind of innocent. Um, I mean, how do we do that now with a cell phone in our hand? You know, how do we really experience a game um, or something physical that is game-like without being tied to our devices? Um, We're we're big game players in this house. um, We pretty much play Uno regularly. (laughs) It's a great game. We play Ticket to Ride. I recently had a birthday, uh, visited my daughter in New York. My husband says, she goes to school there, what do you want to do? I said, "Uh, I'd like to play games. So we went to a place uh, off of Washington Square Park. You pay $10 each to rent a crappy table (laughs) for three hours and play any number of hundreds of games on a shelf. And we just sat and we played Sorry for two hours. (laughs) That was the best... that's what I. That's what I wanted to do for my birthday. So gaming is definitely playing games is in our DNA here. I love it. I I I put everything down and I forget everything when I'm just doing something. Um, when I'm just playing a game, um, and I think that my curiosity is also in the pandemic. How many more people return to board games, card games, and hula hoops, and hula hoops. Do you know what I love as well, Katie? There is a, a quote that I found in um, an obituary of Spud Mellin, um, which mentions the reaction to Jones' hula hoop uh, when it goes to Russia, when it goes to the Soviet Union. The official line from uh, the Soviet Union, in contrast to all those lovely words, Amy, that you've spoken about, the joy of playing, in the Soviet Union, uh, they are called, quote, an example of the emptiness of American culture. Oh. Have some fun, Soviet <laughs> Union. Come on. <laughs> That's funny. You know, the hula hoop can be a metaphor for so many different things. I mean, you were talking about uh, Joan's grit and resilience and her sense of forgiveness and really some the whole idea of a circle, a a circle which is a line that connects with itself and is infinite and goes on and on and around and around. I mean, that's almost like a metaphor for life and for our connection and for forgiveness, I'd say. Yeah, you also have to keep working it to make it stay up. So it requires your effort to keep it going, right? Um, your co- your coordination and and your in kind of your energy. Without your energy, the hula hoop doesn't stay up. It falls. Do you know what, Katie? Today's been a great example of why I love doing this podcast because we've started off with the humble hula hoop and look what we're talking about at the end and yeah. it all makes sense. <laughs> I love it. We're, we've gone really deep. Amy Hill, it's been wonderful having you on We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you for telling Katie and I so much about Joan's story about the hula hoop. If people want to see your documentary, we can highly recommend it. It is called Hula Girl. It is excellent. Joan is excellent. Amy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Katie, I've got to confess, as a man who likes throwing balls and catching balls, the idea of the Super Bowl has caught me (laughs) so much so I've done a little bit of research. Um, How's this for a fact? So apparently (laughs) the Super Bowl um, was the result of an accidentally compressed plastic called Zectron, which um, took two years to develop because it had a tendency to fly apart. Um, and then the, the point, Katie, apparently, when they realised the Super Bowl is ready, they got a giant promotional specimen, 
Okay, <laughs> then someone, for reasons I don't know, yeah. accidentally dropped it from the twenty-third floor of a hotel room. It rebounded fifteen floors and then destroyed a part convertible as it fell again. <laughs> and that was the point where they went, "This is no ordinary ball; it's a Super Bowl." <laughs> I really didn't know that's how that story was going to end. <laughs> I was waiting for a trip to the emergency room with it lodged up <laughs> someone's personal crevice. Uh, so. So uh, an inflamed private hole, perhaps. So I'm glad that this was how it actually transpired. This is also, uh, Katie, maybe want to, to hoop the hula, even though I couldn't do it in 1984. I've got the desire yeah. to try again. Yeah. Well, um, I think you might have to acknowledge that you have stiff hips. <laughs> just, I just genetically got stiff you hips. You just have stiff if hips. If I had stiff hips at eight, at 48, <laughs> they're going to be stiffer. Stiff hips always makes me think of those elderly uh, golden retrievers that oh, have trouble walking. and They, they get a little wheelchair support <laughs> things. Um, I thought that was more of a dachshund situation, but uh, yeah. Well, let us know. We are, of course, in all the usual places on the socials, at Spread That Fire. If you would like another podcast to listen to, I'm sure you would. You're a podcast fan. Have a listen to .com redditland. .com is our tech strand, and our presenter of .com is sitting next to me. Oh, is she? Oh, yes, she is. It lifts the veil on the people of the internet. Series 2 is about the complex metaverse that is Reddit, and there's just so much to it. Reddit isn't just a social media website. It's people. It's stories. It's news. Like the GameStop short squeeze that happened last year or the 2017 white supremacist rally that ended in the death of a young woman or the shocking leak of hundreds of private photos of celebrities. Katie, I salute your work. I've listened to it. It is totally immersive. It is a fascinating listen. If you want to find it, just search for .com that is D-O-T-C-O-M Redditland and subscribe now. So next week, we have quite a figure in post-war history, courtesy of Mr. Billy Joel, and that is... Fidel Castro. Yes, Fidel Castro. You know what? Your Cuban accent isn't a hundred miles different <laughs> to your French accent. It is my foreign accent. It is always the same. <laughs> And there's always like a little bit of a built-in snarl. And some menace for Fidel Castro had menace to him as well as beauty. I find it all very arousing the way you do that. So <laughs> just tuck that in your back pocket the next time you need to keep me sweet, Tom Fordyce. We'll see you next week. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.